Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer. For years to come, try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Okay. Welcome to First Rounders. I hope you are safe. I hope you are COVID-19 free. I hope that everyone you um, you know and love is COVID-19 free. Um, new format. Uh, I've always done these interviews face-to-face, me and another person, two microphones sitting across from a table, whether that's in the studio or if I brought equipment to them, that's how it's done. That's the best way to get a conversation is just to you know be present with that person. And I swore I'd never do it any other way. I'm not going to do them over the phone. But you can't control the world, and sometimes things intervene, like a global pandemic, and there was no way I was going to get Alexis uh, across the table from me and two mics. It's just not going to happen, or any of the guests that I had lined up. And so we did, uh, we did this through video. Alexis is the first one to ever be recorded, not face-to-face. It worked. It actually worked. I mean, you know, when you can see each other and you can hear each other, eventually you, you sort of forget that you're hundreds of miles apart, and the conversation worked. So Alexis... Who is he? He is he was an entrepreneur first. He founded a company called Combinatorics in the nineties. And he has years of experience as a partner at Third Rock. He was a co-founder in Foundation Medicine, Blueprint Medicines, he was the a founding investor in Editas Medicines and many others. And he's now the CEO and chairman of EQRX, a company that is focused one hundred percent on drug pricing, basically. I mean they, they are trying to get drugs to the consumer faster cheaper. He's tackling that problem, that huge problem that our industry is having. So what do we talk about? Well, he grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. We talked about why he was there, why his family was there. He was a horrible experimenter, as he said. Uh, he just was not good in the lab, and he figured that out. And we talked about this formative moment he had. He was doing consulting work. He was quite young. And with some pharma companies, he was riding to lunch with his pharma exec. It just changed his life in the way he thought about what his career might be. And And we also talked about this dynamic tension that exists in this industry between the science and the need for revenue. Yeah, let's just get into it. Here it is, Alexis Borisi, First Rounders, listen up. Hello. You're in there. This is the uh, the theory. <laughs> You're operating on theory today. So I wanted to ask, how how are you running Ecurix? Are you all from home, or is that a, a, you guys an essential business? So in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, uh, we do qualify as an essential business. 
Um, however, we are running 100% uh, from home. You are, and th are. that's that started in March, I assume. Correct. Yeah, middle of March. But what about like I wanted to ask too, just what's the? I mean, if you consider Cambridge, which I do, to be sort of the epicenter of biotech in the U.S. No, no offense to the Bay Area, but Cambridge has really come on strong in the past like decade. Um, what's the mood? Are you in touch with people? Is there a sort of a circle the wagons feel among the biopharma community? Yeah, you know. Uh, Boston, Cambridge always has a bit of a small town feel to it. And that yeah. people, we, we, we all know each other. Uh, it's a pretty tightly linked community. And it's an interesting observation, as you said, right? Like, so I'm involved in uh, seven companies here in Cambridge and a couple in the Bay Area. Uh, and the Bay Area is definitely a little bit more stretched out. So it's sort of a larger uh, geography area. Um, there's a lot of uh, constant communication and touching base and sharing learnings, best practice practices, how we're we all working through this together. What are, what are people doing? Yeah. But is there, is there like constant conversation about COVID-19 as in, you know, uh, what can we do to fight against it? I don't know. Do we have any extra masks around that, that sort of thing? Uh, there, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, helping people out, helping our frontline healthcare workers. What equipment do we have? What could we mobilize over? A lot of uh, the companies, you know, we have people in them that are, uh, you know, either directly involved because they're physicians and they're being called back in, yeah. uh, or they're people that had uh, appointments in the, uh, the medical institutions around us and they're being called back in, or their spouse uh, is or other family members. So there's a lot of direct uh, involvement as well in sort of su su supporting them, the understanding of them, doing everything we can in uh, 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 providing the, the equipment that's necessary. And then there's lots of discussions and there's lots of great leaders. I mean, there's a lot of things that our country needs, for example, of what's possible in diagnostic testing and a lot of people that are putting in a lot of volunteer time getting involved in things that maybe there hasn't been the national leadership on. And so it's been up to private citizens banding together to say, what is it that we need? How do we go make this happen both yeah. for, at a state level and a national level? So a lot of people are giving a lot of their time. Yeah. Biotech always has a very, you know, strong sense of purpose, I feel. But right now you're like, oh, this is really what we're all about. This is our time kind of. So I think, as you just said, like, this is a really mission-driven industry, and the people in it are driven by that day in, day out to begin with. Like, I mean, people want to make a difference. Yeah. Um, maybe you know what it is a little bit is uh, it is an industry that's attracted a lot of capital. It's created a lot of fortunes. Um, look, I, I've personally benefited, you know, uh, I've done very, very well by it. Maybe all that money sometimes – it gets become sort of a method of keeping score or people like who's made it, who's doing the best, who's raised the largest fund, who's done the biggest IPO. Those things aren't what this industry is first and foremost about. And I don't think that's what motivates the vast majority of people that are in it. But sometimes maybe the dollar signs part of our industry has gotten to be disproportionately uh, out in front versus where it should be and yeah. uh, this certainly 
clears the deck in a, in a reset. And maybe it also shows us ways that as an industry, we can do things differently, together, effectively, uh, and not always about the money. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's an interesting light uh, that maybe uh, will serve for some self-reflection. Like a little reset of the focus almost. Um, you, I, so you've been in Massachusetts for well over a decade, yeah? Uh, longer than that. It's scary. I came to Massachusetts originally for graduate school. So yeah. I was 21 years old. Uh, so it's more oh, than yeah. 25 years. Oh, yeah. Okay. But so you didn't, I, I feel like, um, I don't know why, but I feel like you grew up in the Midwest. I did. Yes. Wisconsin. Oh, Wisconsin. Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, that's a great town. People love that town. Wonderful. Wonderful place to grow up. Absolutely. Were uh, your parents professors or you were part of the university? Yeah. Yeah. So I was a, you know, faculty brat, you might say. My dad was a, a chair of the Department of Cell Biology. He was a, you know, molecular biologist and a zoologist and biophysicist. Um, and uh, I grew up in and around laboratories, you know, from the time that I was, time that I was little. Uh, this makes sense. He, you guys had moved to that area for the job then? Yeah, so uh, the family, you know, my uh, grandfather on one side, great-grandfather on the other side, uh, grandparents, great-grandparents had immigrated from Eastern Europe, uh, you know, in the late 19, you know, early 1920s, late 19-teens. Um, and uh, like my grandfather, uh, you know, had come down the uh, St. Lawrence Seaway and landed in uh, Chicago. I have his landing papers in, you know, North America. Um, spoke, you know, Yiddish, uh, some Russian, but like, you know, couldn't write English, you know, just sort of his landing papers with a big X and they yeah. settled, uh, you know, he followed an older brother who'd followed an older brother. And so the family settled in the Chicago area and, uh, he set up, um, Boris's hardware, uh, on the South side of, of Chicago. And, uh, my dad was the first person right in the family to go to college yeah. and they sent him to the local school, right? He seemed sort of smart. He graduated high school at 15 and they sent him to the local school, which was the university of Chicago. Um, and that's how sort of he entered the science world. And uh, he got a professorship uh, after doing his PhD also at the university of Chicago and doing some studies in Cambridge, England. Um, and got a professorship at Wisconsin. And it was his way of sort of moving uh, a little bit away from the family, but sort of still staying close by. So my sisters and I, you know, well, uh, I was the one that was born uh, in Madison, but so that's where I was born and, and grew up. Yeah, that's, I was, uh, I mean, because we're all working from home, I was telling my wife I had to set up and record. She said, well, who are you interviewing? And I said your name and she goes, oh, he's Russian. And it hadn't occurred to me, but maybe that's true. Yeah, it comes through the Russian side. Borsi. Yeah, you know, I mean, Russian, so Ru Russian Jewish, you know, the name originally was Borsovskia. Uh, I like to say there were seven brothers that, that, that came. They all had ended up with slightly different versions of the last name, whether it was, <laughs> you know, Boris, Borisov, Borsovsky. And for the case of, uh, you know, my grandfather, Fischl Borsovskia, he became, you know, Philip Borsi. Yeah. And then my parents are like, Alexis, you say, well, that fits. It's a very Russian name. Like, Why did you choose Alexis? You know, and like, eh, we liked it. Yeah. Okay. So that wasn't like a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, this is making sense now. So you grew up around labs, as you said, your father was a scientist. So you had an avenue, 
you know, right toward that line of thinking for your own career, I suppose. Did you consider anything else along the way? Yeah, you know, so um, I was a, a, you know, classic sort of science dork uh, uh, in school growing up, uh, captain of our science Olympics team, uh, you know, sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, math team member, all sorts of uh, uh, great stuff. And it was a, a, you know, enormous amount of fun. But so being a good uh, classic, uh, you know, science nerd, uh, loved Star Trek and all sort of such things. And uh, I went to University of Chicago as well. And I went there assuming I was going to become a, a physicist, right? Because physics at the time would have been seen as sort of the, the, the pinnacle of sciences. And I wanted to go create matter, antimatter, warp drive uh, propulsion. And I started working in the uh, laboratory of astrophysics space research as a freshman oh, in, uh, in, in, at, at Chicago, uh, you know, in helping to sort of, you know, build a high energy cosmic ray uh, satellite experiment. Wow. Um, while, you know, studying uh, physics and staying away from biology at the time, because that was my dad's thing, right? Instead of just trying to yeah. figure out, you know, Your my own path. Own path. Yeah. Yeah. Chicago, right, is a, a school very much in uh, uh, going into the classics and, and sort of the examined life and, and thinking about that carefully. And so, of course, I became very existential as an undergraduate student and began thinking, what am I doing? And uh, spending you know, 30, 40 hours on uh, physics problem sets and looking at one of my uh, dorm mates across the way uh, who was just sort of staying out late, partying, coming back, putting on an old rugby helmet, smashing his head literally <laughs> on the door, and then walking into class, not sure, like, how is he even standing on his feet? And he was setting the curve on the, uh, the physics exams. And I thought, okay, they're people whose minds just totally get this. And right. I thought about things, you know, in Chicago, uh, some, you know, the great teachers there, uh, you know, Professor Lucas, who would then go on to win the Nobel Prize and just took an economics class from him and getting fired up on uh, economics, a very classic University of Chicago. They have a fundamentals major where you're supposed to ask a, a fundamental question about life. What is uh -huh. the proper relationship between state and society? What is marriage? What is the relationship between the state and an individual? You're supposed to read, you know, a handful of books in a handful of languages. And I was uh, I went to a class uh, that was uh, mostly graduate students and uh, doctoral law students focused on uh, Thomas Hobbes, the day key way and the dialogue on the common law. Just that one small book, right, for the whole quarter, just deeply, deeply getting into that. So the point is, I, I got, I decided that physics wasn't going to be the path, and I got deeply existential, and I had no idea what I was going to do. and. Uh, then I started taking biology, and uh, actually, my first cell biology course taught by uh, Professor uh, Hazelcorn, who had actually taught my father that course uh, at the school. Wow. And I started really loving the biology, um, which I thought that was uh, very cool, and uh, joined a, a biology lab and was doing some work on this new techniques at the time, sequencing. Yeah. Uh, you know, these old long gels, and we were sequ sequencing large teleost fish to try to determine evolutionarily whether they were one population or two population. And there was a one course left that I needed to get the biology degree, and I, I, I you know, sort of young and stubborn, thought, oh, that's, I don't want to take that course. What was it? So I, it was an animal behavior course. 
Now, in retrospect, it would have been absolutely fascinating. Yeah. But at the time, I was thinking, this isn't hard enough science. Yeah. Um, again, sort of, you know, some of the silliness of, uh, of youth. youth. And so then I had a challenge. Uh, uh, well, what am I going to get my degree in? Because I was entering my last year, my fourth year of undergraduate. And uh, I had loved my organic chemistry, which I had taken for the, the biology perspective and just had absolutely loved it. And so I thought, well, maybe, maybe I'll do chemistry. And I joined a chemistry lab and I took almost all chemistry courses. Uh, and um, this is your senior year. This is my senior year. Yeah. And sort of was able to get the chemistry degree uh, in my senior year. But with, but with plenty of biology, because you were that close to the bio, bio degree. So you exactly. must have had a ton of bio and a little bit of physics in there, too. Exactly. And plus some of these, you know, deep Ex existential, existential right, you know, right. humanities, uh, philosophy, a uh, little bit of economics. Um, and actually, that mixture really sort of sums up like what I love of sort of bringing multiple things together and seeing the big picture and how you put the pieces together. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you ask the question, was it always a straight shot? And the answer was no. And so here I'm coming to the end of college. And it's the question, what do you? What's next, right? What do you, what do, you do? And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I remember my father was like, well, that's great. You can do anything you want to do. Uh, just remember, you're going to have to feed yourself and put a shelter over your head. So you better figure something out because yeah. no more support. You're on, you're on your own. So do whatever you want to do, but, but, but figure it out. Did you go back to live with your parents while you figured it out or no, so like, and, and just, you know, coming very much from the science mind and, and uh, like some of the things that you might have done with a general undergraduate degree coming from a great school, like doing strategy consulting or investment banking uh, or going into a company, you know, training program. Like, I didn't even know that those things existed. Yeah. I mean, my mind was you either went to graduate school or I'm not sure what else. You yeah. Did. And so, <laughs> so you I, went to grad I, school. I, I, well, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And I, I wasn't sure what to do. I sort of knew that graduate school wasn't the perfect match for what I wanted to do, but I had no idea what else uh, it was, it was going to be. And um, luckily I had applied, you know, for the Howard Hughes predoctoral fellowship and uh, had uh, gotten that. So by the time I got around to applying for the graduate schools, I mean, to be frank, I was a little bit late. I was past the deadlines. But having won the Howard Hughes, you know, gotten the predoctoral award, that made it a little bit sort of uh, a, a fundamentally easier proposition. And um, I ended up going to, uh, to Harvard, to the Department of Chemistry, that then got renamed the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology uh -huh. uh, while I was there. And there was this thing, you know, this feeling I wasn't quite sure where I was going on it, but the research that was being done there, uh, you know, particularly uh, by uh, Stuart Schreiber and Greg Verdine uh, yeah. at the time, uh, I was so excited about that, despite like not knowing what I wanted to do first and sort of dragging my feet a little bit, that then I just got really sort of fired up and, you know, moved out to the Boston Cambridge area. Yeah, I had Verdine on this show. Uh, he is super fascinating. Did you? Absolutely. You must, oh, I love talking to that guy. He was so great. Uh, I like I like this aspect of you going to college and thinking that you were going to be a great physicist, and then and you could do it, right? You could do physics, but then seeing somebody who was working half as hard as you were and doing better, and you're like, oh, that's what a great physicist might look like. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Did he end up being a great physicist? Do you know? 
you know, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, just I don't know the answer to that. Put a rugby helmet on and ran out of your life, I guess. I don't know. Um, okay, so Stuart Schreiber, he's got this reputation of being really focused on therapeutics in his research. And I wondered if that sort of helped lead you from, I might be a researcher into, hey, how do I get into industry? Oh, absolutely. Right. Because Stuart, of course, was deeply involved with uh, uh, the creation of Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Um, and uh, when I joined the lab, he had been involved in creating Ariad Pharmaceuticals, yeah. which was then, you know, a few years ago bought by uh, Takeda. And, uh, you know, it was the, the divisions were less stark than they are today. So, like, where did the lab at Harvard end and where did Ariad begin? Um, there was definitely, you had that exposure to that and that way of thinking was part, uh, in the conversation in the lab. And if you were interested in it, uh, you got to learn about it and it sort of, uh, sparked my curiosity. And, and one of the things at Harvard is that once you're in the graduate schools, you can take courses across any of the graduate schools. Um, you get lower priority than the people that are core yeah. students in that school. Yeah. And so I started walking across the river and taking courses at Harvard Business School. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. And it was it was totally because of that exposure and what Stuart was doing. And of course, what are the classes that were open to me? It wasn't the sort of the the finance classes or sort of the core things that the the, the students were doing. There were two classes that I that I took. Uh, one was called the coming of uh, uh, managerial uh, capitalism. You know, sort of, which was basically the business history taught by Alfred Chandler, the guru in, uh, of business history, and then his protege, uh, McGraw. And this was a survey course from starting with uh, John Jacob Astor and the fur traders that would put so much of their net wealth onto a ship to sail around the world to China as part of the original China trade and then bring it back uh -huh. and sort of thinking about their business decisions about who is this captain and how do I know that this person that's going to be out of contact for six months with so much precious value of, of their, of their money yeah. is going to come back. Yeah. And, and, and that being one of their key business decisions to the railroads, to the creation of general motors, to the, you know, the uh, conglomerate capitalism of the sixties uh, to then, uh, uh, what we then were considering sort of the modern form of, of business in the, uh, you know, now uh, early 90s uh, that that was. The second class that I was taking was a joint class between uh, the law school, the Kennedy School of Government and the business school, which was called Capitalism Constrained, Public Policy and the Manager. And the idea of this course is that Business doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists on a regulatory, legal, societal playing field. And it's not about whether that playing field is good or bad, but that the shape of that playing field determines the game that you're playing. Huh. And it was looking through a series of verticals, communications, transportations, pharmaceuticals, looking at the interplay between what makes the lay of the land, the rules of the game, um, given uh, businesses work. And so these were two spectacular courses, probably two of the most academic courses offered by Harvard Business School. But they sort of, one, taught the vernacular of business. Two, they gave the history of business and the sort of survey across different uh, domains. And particularly when we think about the life sciences, right? Yeah. Medical innovations, this is one of the most regulated businesses that's out there. And thinking about what all these intersections 
are and how do you think about that and how do you connect the science and the medicine to the business uh, and the strategy? You mean regulated because your end product has to go through this very stringent FDA before you can ever sell it like that exactly. versus other industries or you could you could buy, you can make jeans and sell, I mean, you can make pants and sell pants, no problem, but for the, yeah. But the, this, the idea of, you know, that that's your first class where they're like, Hey, we're going to give this person a bunch of capital. They're going to sail off across the world. We're not going to see them forever. How do we know that they're actually doing the work that we want them to do? I mean, that is directly applicable to the venture capital model today. Yeah, exactly. And that was clicking in your mind then. Well, so I didn't know what the venture capital model was uh, at that point yet. Right. I was just sort of uh, uh, learning, but your point is totally spot on. And some of those lessons like really resonated and the same thing is true, like going back in like the railroads, right? I mean, modern bonds and sort of like were partly created by the whole railroad industry because you had these massively long-term capital intensive businesses that needed huge amount, huge amounts of capital to build something that was going to take a long time before we generate any cash flow. Yeah. What does that sound like? It sounds yeah, like exactly. a drug. And, uh, you know, and it becomes really fascinating because you go back and things like, how did the shared stock company get invented, which is, by the way, an invention from the from the Netherlands, from the Dutch, Dutch exchanges. And it's a fascinating thing to go back to the first exchange in Amsterdam. But like different needs for businesses and how they were financed and structured, which actually intersected with innovation in corporate structures and ways that capital gets pulled together that allows certain businesses uh, to exist. Um, these things are connected and there's an interplay uh, in it. So this this sounds like as you're working under Stuart in the lab, you're you're thinking you're getting all this business business information, and you're thinking like, how do I turn this research into a business? Because yeah, this, this was get, this is in the '90s, right? Late '90s. Uh, this is uh, let's say '94, '95, mid '90s. Yeah. So I mean, the industry's there, but not, not nearly what it is now. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm getting you know inspired by what what I see with Stuart directly. And I'm still sitting here thinking, I'm still being a little bit existential, like, okay, what am I going to do? And because I love science, and I love the ideas, and I, uh, but what's the path that I want to pursue? So like, I'll be blunt, like I'm sitting there at the bench, I'm doing my experiments, and like, I am a horrible experimentist. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, uh, it's likewise, like, I'm a horrible cook, as my wife, like, will, you know, remind me often, she's like, you like have one dish and you make this big <laughs> deal about the dish and everybody's got to be quiet. And it's this big show. She's like, you're not cook Like you cook, you got to feel the ingredients, the experiment, the heat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just didn't really have that touch. And I remember as my, you know, uh, my benchmate, I'm like watching him do his experiments and he's happy and he's just grooving out to the, you know, bit of radio that we have on in the lab and he's doing this stuff. And I can't even get this damn ligation to work. And I'm like working on it for weeks. And it's like, it's simple ligation. Why, what yeah. am I doing wrong? Like I'm following yeah. the recipe and I'm getting really worked up about the rep, you know, the, what are the steps I need to do on the protocol? And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I'm like, again, like looking at my, 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 my benchmate is a, who's a good friend. I, uh, and he's now the uh, CSO at the Harvard Blavatnik uh, Accelerator, Curse uh, Keith. And I'm like, okay, that's what, a, like, he's a good experimentalist and scientist. Uh, I look at my father, he's a great, really diligent uh, uh, experimentalist and, and, and uh, scientist. I'm like, this, maybe this isn't sort of the right match for me, but I love the ideas and I love thinking about it. 
So of course I gave another shot. I had done this back in medical school and actually before, but uh, back before uh, uh, college and had done this before I went to college. My, you know, some family members were always saying, go be a doctor, be a doctor. That's quite oh, my classic thing Jewish family, be, go be a doctor. So yeah, yeah. I went, I was like, okay. So I shadowed, you know, uh, some physicians, you know, at Mass General and Brigham trying to get, you know, it, can I, maybe I should be a doctor. Maybe, maybe this is the thing. Yeah. Maybe this is the thing. Yeah. And uh, I so respect what they what they do. And my 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 wife uh, has you know trained as a surgeon. Uh, so many of my family members around are are physicians and have so much respect for what they do uh, day in day out. And the physician and that true caring spirit, like it is so beautiful and incredible. And I just but I you have to be honest to yourself, which was. I didn't feel that heal, healer's calling. Like again, I love the ideas of it. I was like, that's not the right path either. Can, can I ask, like, at this point, as we said, you'd gone in to college thinking physics, and then you're like, well, actually, bio, well, we didn't because you got stubborn as chemistry, and now you've been in your PhD program for chemistry. Like, were you getting nervous that you might not find the thing? Um, I think there's definitely that that feeling, right? Like you're like you haven't found the thing that's entirely right, and you don't. The want years to are going do, by. Yeah, you know the the, uh, the clock is ticking a little bit. It's definitely an element on that. And so then what I did uh, is I took the master's degree and ran. I dropped out of the PhD program. I and I went and got a job in the real world, where now I had learned about consulting and venture capital and uh, banking uh, and companies. And I got a job with a little boutique strategy consulting firm, partly because the founder there was also a serial founder, and uh, they sort of pitched themselves as both consulting and investing. Uh-huh. And I wanted to learn about investing, and I also wanted to learn about operating. What did it actually take to go do? I was totally naive. I didn't know anything about business. And I thought I was leaving science, that I was just going to go do general strategy. So instead of finishing off my PhD, what I basically did over these three and a half years is I did a series of rotations because our client was the you know, senior executives of these companies of what were the key issues that were facing them, which could be from the incentivizing a field force, how you pay sales reps, uh-huh. to the uh, marketing strategy for a newly launched product, to the pricing uh, strategy for a newly launched product, to what therapeutic areas they should be in to a management of the overall portfolio of 250 programs going back from early stage discovery all the way to the market, to looking at new emerging areas such as gene therapy and whether that's an area that they should be investing in and what that would mean. And sort of systematically across discovery, development and commercialization, this practicum course of how do things work the way they do in the biotech and pharmaceutical uh, industry. (laughs) When, When I left, you know, the PhD program uh, in the world, like a lot of like, uh, particularly my father was like, what the heck are you doing? You're walking away from a Howard Hughes fellowship. Yeah. You're in a great lab with a great mentor. You've got a great pedigree and track record. You can just punch your ticket just like, don't mess it up. Like, yeah. And you're doing what? And I used to try to describe what consulting is. And I, I would describe to my dad what consulting is. And he's like, why don't they know like, why do they need you? Like, who are you? You're, you're, you're this young schmuck. Like, what do you know? Yeah. You why haven't done it. You yeah, haven't you done haven't done it. Why, yeah. why is anybody paying you to do anything? Like, what's like he couldn't get his head around it as to why that made any sense. So at this point, you're you're the black sheep of the family, for God's sakes. 
you dropped yeah. out of your PhD program, you're worthless. What are you going to do next? Well, so what's really funny as well is like, uh, so I've got two sisters. One of them, one of uh, um, is a, a PhD uh, neuroscientist who trained with Saul Snyder at Hopkins. <laughs> and the, uh, the other one is a uh, concert pianist. Um, uh, and her son, my nephew, is actually a true, like, true prodigy. But she, who was, she was a great pianist, her son is much better. She dropped out. She never finished her PhD program either. Oh, good. So okay. This is like, oh, okay. my dad is like, what? What happened? Two of my two of my children, like you know, failed on their uh, uh, their their doctorates. Yeah, uh, they were both very happy. Yeah, uh, yeah, it worked out. Um, it worked out. Yep. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is so now it's sort of making more sense to me when I look at your career, but it's it seems like you would have thought you should just go into investing then, but you decide to start a company. Yeah, you know, um, so I'll tell a story. I'll, I'll hopefully leave the names of uh, that nobody will be able to figure out what it is. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm at one of the largest pharmaceutical companies' top corporate headquarters as a consultant. And, as a consultant. And, uh, you know, so first of all, like the corporate headquarters, right? So this is one of the largest pharmaceutical companies. The corporate headquarters is this massively manicured, immaculate building. It's isolated away from everything else. It's the research labs are in other, other, like they're hundreds of miles away. Even the commercial headquarters of the pharmaceutical business itself is elsewhere. Uh-huh. So you go in this building and the senior executives of this corporation, there's like only a handful of people around. It's quiet, really quiet. And you've got, you know, some of the back uh, office senior sort of financial staff. And this is where the executives that are making the fundamental decisions on this thing that is affecting broadly American and nas- and global lives. And they have this carriage house that's on the property right it's this this massively beautifully immaculate campus and you could walk over there and a famous chef would come in from manhattan because this wasn't in manhattan but it was in the suburbs uh, you know around Uh a couple days a week and would cook them incredible lunches and so you could walk over from the headquarters uh you know to get this incredible lunch and there'd be a few times that i would be invited to come along and i remember on one like one of these top senior executives it's like, hey, buddy, you know, come along. And he's like, and this Mercedes, you know, uh, S-Class uh, limo pulls up 
it's a two minute walk. Yeah. And it's like, well, no, we have the driver that will take us there. Yeah. And I remember thinking as we're going over and I was looking at his fingers and they were fat and they were covered with these big rings. And like the conversation, it was purely about the money. And I'm not saying, and I've, a lot of my friends are, you know, the leading executives uh, of these companies now. And so this is not the way that everybody is, but this was a formative moment for me back in this time in the mid nineties. And like, it wasn't about the science. It wasn't about the medicine. They would say it, they would say the words, but inside and in the room, it was about the money. It was about the cash flows. And I was like, I don't want to be just about the money. Like I want to take the science and the medicine and what we know and what we can do. And I want to make amazing products that are going to make a big difference for people and society. Like that's what I want to do. That's what I want to make a difference in. Now, it's not a naive Pollyanna statement. Like let's go back to the John Jacob Astor conversation. Like this is risky business that requires enormous amounts of capital. You got to make money to have the system work. Yeah. Right? But I didn't want it to be about, about the, money. the money. I wanted it to be about the breakthrough innovations that's making the world a better place and recognizing that you need to make money to make that whole system work. Yeah. It's just uh, the the idea. I mean, that's a nice life that guy's having with a Mercedes taking him to lunch and a famous chef is making lunch and lunch is delicious and you go back to your quiet office. But that is that is someone who's lost the focus of this industry for sure, right? Yeah, Look, I can know, see you being young and being like, this is, a, yeah. this is beyond what I want. I mean, I've studied enough science that I want to do this, but not in this way. I don't want to be on that path. I don't want to be on that path. And, and I was offered, you know, a junior executive position, uh, you know, in one of these companies, and it's not what I wanted to do, Yeah. right? Because I, I wanted to be closer to the science and to the medicine, and I wanted to make the things that I wanted to be, I wanted to feel that touch of making the difference. And I've got to tell you, it feels great. Like one of the, like the things that I'm most proud about, right? Like are the products that have gotten all the way through, you know, and that are making a difference, you know, the hundreds and thousands of people that have gotten the foundation one test, yeah. uh, you know, from foundation medicine. I remember when Todd Golub invited me to dinner and we had worked together in building my first company, Combinatorix, and he had invited me to dinner and said, I want to tell you about what we're seeing is possible now at the Broad Institute. You know, the first two or three cancer genomes have been sequenced, and we can imagine what the world is going to be like, and we think this needs to be available for people, and it needs to be done right, because there's so many ways that it could be done wrong, and it is a moral and ethical imperative that it gets done right and that it gets out there and it makes a difference for patients. And I remember that first conversation as we talked about it, and then seeing literally hundreds of thousands of those tests be used and getting the stories, friends, family, strangers of how it has made a difference in their lives in you know getting a drug approved and having people come and there was one uh husband who was talking about his wife and he's like this drug has transformed our life thank you for giving thank you for giving me my wife back thank you for giving us our family back like this is the world of difference. She yeah. couldn't leave the house. 
she couldn't live, she couldn't work. And now he's like, she's back. And like, that's, that's, you know, that that's what I wanted to do. And when you get there, and it's hard, right? It is really hard to do. And when you get there, it is the so best thing. worthwhile. But I want to, so I want to ask, I want to touch on one thing in combinatorics, because um, it's just super interesting. So you started this company, I actually don't know how you started it. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm, I was doing the consulting thing, as I described, right? And uh, so I was doing my practicum, learning about the world of business. Uh, my learning curve was beginning to flatten off. I was getting to sort of like the, the you know, offer I could go and join, become a junior executive in one of these companies. I could go become, say, well, what I'm going to do is be a consultant or be a partner in a consulting firm. Is that what I want to do? Neither of those are what I wanted to do. I had these experiences where I was seeing that in the business, it was just sort of just about the money and I would that, you know, that we were just talking about that I didn't want to do that. Again, sort of seeing how pieces can get put together. I took some ideas that would have been in the direction of where I would have taken my laboratory if I had gone the academic route, sort of mm -hmm. ideas that I've been nurturing or that had been thinking about, but now informed by my practicum in industry and sort of what I had learned or seen, or maybe just as importantly, not seen, what were sort of the empty spaces or the conventional wisdom of things that people said you couldn't do, intersecting those things. And then I had, you know, this idea that would ultimately become combinatorics. And even though I was still like in my mid twenties and being naive and not knowing that you're not supposed to go start a biotech company as in your, you know, uh, uh, mid twenties and not knowing that you're not supposed to do it, like we just went ahead and, and did it. And, you know, chance favors the prepared mind and you do need some lucky breaks and incidents that go your way. So as it happened, uh, we had a, uh, talking about sort of some of the thin threads that tie things together, a buddy of mine from University of Chicago, huh. from the dorm rooms, had done an internship at Goldman Sachs for 10 weeks in one summer while he was in college. He ultimately became a physician. But so in his path of journeying, he'd been really into economics originally, but ironically, he became a physician. He had done this internship and he had become friends with one of the senior partners at Goldman. He was visiting town while I was thinking about, hey, maybe it's time for me to move on. And I'm thinking about like starting a business or ideas, I don't know. And he said, you should meet this guy. Like you guys are just gonna hit it off. And we're having lunch on Newberry Street. And he literally just like pulls out his phone. It was like a flip phone at the time. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, here, talk. I'm like, I'm, 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 I'm. And so I got, just started talking to this to this guy who's just brilliant and smart and, and really interesting. And we just sort of had a random, interesting conversation. And he said to me, hey, you want to come help us do some you know, diligence work at Goldman? Um, and so I basically did some freelance consulting and we got to know each other. And he was looking at a few biotech companies and a few venture funds. And I so did, did some diligence on some biotech companies and venture funds, just sort of freelancing for him while I was developing these ideas on the side. And then when I felt like I'd gotten to know him enough to sort of trust him, I just went to him and I said, hey, do you want to start your own biotech company? Like, here's a couple bright young guys. You, you know, and I think like collecting interesting bright people was sort of interesting to him. And he's like, okay. Did and you have a business model? Did you have a, you had none of that? No, it just it was just conversation. It was talk, you know, um, and 
he said, okay, here's two and a half million dollars. He was putting it in a rate of $125,000 a month. Yep. Um, and uh, we just got started. Wow. <clears throat> but you did you know what you wanted the company to be? Or you just knew you had some smart friends and, and you would sort of figure it out? No, no, no. We, well, so we pitched the, the we, we, had, uh, we had been developing the concept that was. Oh, you did have a pitch for him. Okay. Correct. We didn't have, there was not a PowerPoint presentation. There wasn't a fancy. Yeah thing but there was a concept okay okay so this this uh so tell me where i'm wrong here but then the company goes for about eight or nine years you are trying to find um combinations of other drugs that are sort of known you know the safety safety profiles of and put them together in ways new ways that might spur some sort of healing effect in one indication or another you come up with an osteoarthritis drug Cinevive, yep. yep which i think uh fails in phase two and that craters the company basically yeah yep. So what exactly. I want to ask about, because it, because um, I think this is like an interesting moment in biotech history too, is that happens, drug fails in phase two. Of course, that happens all the time. That's not particularly interesting. Um, but because it was like 2008, 2009, um, everybody, you know, often when that happens, companies just move to the next asset or they pivot in some direction. And it seems like what happened to you guys was the investors got activists and they said, what we really want is the cash back out of that company because money was tight. The markets had shut down. Uh, this was in the recession. And people were like, we're not giving any more double, not, no, more, no more second chances. We just want the cash back out of that company. And what ended up happening is it was, was a merger. But is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, uh, so we had multiple clinical programs and Cineviv was one, but it was, it was without a question, probably like the, the, the flagship yeah. uh, uh, program. And uh, yeah, the, the day that we were getting the clinical trial results that it failed was back right around when Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and the whole meltdown was going down, right? Yeah. Like it was literally right then, September 2008, and the bottom fell out, uh, you know, the world. Um, and we still had a significant amount of cash on hand, right? So then the, the question, you know, what do you do with that? And how much do you still believe in what you have? Uh, what's the best path forward? How do you keep in mind the interests of everybody that's evolved. And there's absolutely, there were uh, some investors there uh, that were like, look, the best path is just turn the money back uh, over to, to shareholders us, right. um, uh, on it. And there were other people that thought about that a very different path is what uh, ultimately uh, made sense. And as you said, there ended up being uh, a merger with another company uh, and to build forward. I had said uh, and came into the board before we did that merger with the other company is I had said, look, it's time for me to move on. I, I'm going to do follow the path of whatever is going to be most successful. You know, I want, I want the company to be as successful as possible, but there had already been like, if you will, I had, was getting restless to what's the next thing to build after having sort of run that company uh, for nine years, was hungry for the next, uh, the next chapter and then the next stage. I'm interested in what you can tell me about what that looks like when investors start telling you that they want the money back out. I mean, are they calling board meetings and saying, listen, there's, there's the failed trial. We don't want to give this anymore. We don't want to give this company another shot. Uh, you know, is there some sort of, do they vote on that? Do people stand up and say, well, we, we disagree. Somebody obviously said it. We think there's a different path forward and end up being a merger. But like what, when those investors begin to tell you what they think they want to happen to your company, even though they are shareholders, what does that look like? Well, one thing to keep in mind is that investors are always telling you what they 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 
want you to do. And yeah. what one of the things that most investors will say, uh, and I, this is an advice that I give to a lot of CEOs, which is um, investors actually want you and the management team to, you know, uh, with the board to make decisions of what you think is right in the best interest. Most investors know that they're not the ones actually running or operating the company and they don't have access to all the information and they want you to be a strong team and trying to make those decisions and do it right. A lot of investors will say, in fact, don't listen to me, but that won't stop them from telling you what their <laughs> opinions are, right? Yeah. And to be strong. And that's, and that's actually a very healthy uh, dynamic and it helps keep you sharper as a management team uh, and as a board. So just simply saying like, you get investors, particularly, you know, whether you're a public company or a private company that will always be telling you their opinions of, of what you need to do. Part of what is management's responsibility is to uh, act in what you think is uh, in the, you know, duty of care and loyalty, your fiduciary duty to the company and all of the shareholders. And so you, you convinced everyone that the best path was this merger Neuromed came in and it's sort of like a merge of equals. Uh, yep. That was a Canadian company, but they sort of relocated to your headquarters in Cambridge. Correct. And and that you stepped away and Neuromed became a different company. And I think they still they still worked Cineviva around, I think, in a different indication for a while or something like that. How did you get to Third Rock? So um, while I was still at Conatorix, I had been uh, I had the pleasure of being a minor co-founder and then uh, became chairman of Forma Therapeutics, which Todd Golub was involved with and Stuart Schreiber. But I was the CEO of Combinatorics, so I didn't have a lot of time. So it was just a little bit uh, of effort on that. And that had, you know, you get so all in on building this one company and doing your all to make it successful. Starting with Forma was like this reopening up of the horizon of like, oh God, there's so many ideas, so much to be learned. And I felt that my world had, by necessity, become overly focused, overly narrow. Yeah. And so it had reawakened this hungering. So after I uh, had left Combinatorics, people, of course, were reaching out to me and uh, offering CEO jobs at various, sort of, uh, uh, at various sort of biotechs around town. And I was doing some pretty deep diligence on a few, but I hadn't found the one that I was really fired up to go do. And as I had said, there had been this uh, uh, dinner with um, Todd Gullub, where I had learned about what was being thought about by Todd and Eric and Levi and Matthew. And so we had been meeting casually, like every Wednesday night for a while, for months. I, and so when I actually was officially out of combinatorics, I, I pretty much rolled in with them to say, okay, let's see if we can create what we would then name foundation medicine it wasn't called that yet it was called personal genomics personal cancer genomics pcg huh. <laughs> um and we were you know just working up the business concept the ideas debating the ideas <clears throat> trying to figure it out and while we were working on that in parallel to that we had been talking to uh third rock uh, and to uh mark levin because Mark and Eric obviously kn knew each other really well, uh, having built uh, from uh, the building of Millennium uh, Pharmaceuticals. And so Mark and Eric and I would be having dinner uh, on a regular basis. And at a certain point, as we went into the fall, Mark said to me, he's like, look, while you're getting foundation medicine going, why don't you just come and sit around Third Rock? 
be an entrepreneur in residence at Third Rock. And uh, maybe we'll invest in foundation medicine. Maybe we won't, but maybe, you know, well, what we'll can hurt? Fun. Yeah. You know, and look, I was building foundation medicine and was the, you know, uh, CEO and pulling it together and we had no money and I was just doing it. Nobody was paying me anything. And Mark was basically like, I'll pay you here. We'll pay you. We'll give you an office. We'll give you support. We'll put a bunch of uh, team around. And if we don't invest and you take it, you, that's great. And if we do, that's great. Yeah. And uh, so I started doing that. And of course, Third Rock did come in and became the founding investor of Foundation Medicine. And in that period of time, while we were standing up Foundation Medicine, that's when I also sketched out that sort of the notes and laid the groundwork for what would become Blueprint Medicines. And it also started going back, talking about Greg Verdine. Uh, Greg was a venture partner uh, at Third Rock, and we laid the groundwork for what would become Warp Drive Bio. Yeah. And uh, it was just an enormous amount of fun. Yeah, so it's, much fun. And so we got Foundation Medicine up and going, and uh, Third Rock was raising its uh, second fund. Uh, this is in 2010 now. And uh, they asked me, do you want to come on and be a partner at the fund? And I was like, this is just so much fun. I, uh, you know, I said yes. It was hard to step away and not be the CEO of Foundation Medicine. So after I said yes and I became a partner, I was still the CEO of Foundation Medicine until I recruited Mike Polini, who joined in May of 2011. Uh, so I was the CEO of Foundation Medicine. I was a partner at Third Rock. I was creating Blueprint Medicines. I became in that time period, right, the, sort of the CEO of uh, uh, Warp Drive Bio. I was going to ask about that because it's like since since Combinatorics, you have not gone that route where you have started a company from the base ground and went out and looked for funding. It's the other way. You've been founding companies as an investor. And I thought maybe that's, the, you know, you found your thing. That's it, right? That gives you that broad range because you can do it over and over. You don't necessarily get restless because you're under a new idea. Is that accurate? So uh, in some ways, yes. Uh, but, it, you know, it is, for, and this is just a personal thing. For me, it is an ongoing tension all the time because I love the actual building and I am so deeply loyal to them and I love the commitment and it's not a transaction to me. It is a, it is a child. It is uh, a passion. Um, you know, I, I had to, I wasn't the, the starting CEO at Blueprint Medicines because I was at Foundation Medicine. Then later on, I had to jump in to become the CEO of Blueprint Medicines because the company was struggling a little bit. Yeah. And uh, I had to get it sort of going on the right trajectory, which we did. Um, but it, it's again, like then I brought in, you know, Jeff Albers, again, just spectacular guy, spectacular, you know, working relationship uh, and a true joy and pleasure. But I was tempted again to go all in on Blueprint, right? Like, so, not, you know, handing those reins over really, really difficult. And I guess the way, the point of what I'm saying by that is it was always a deep tension for me personally. I see other people in venture investing that are just, what they are is they're investors. I see other people in the venture capital community that are lifestyle grazers. <laughs> they're not incredible investors and they're not incredible company builders. They just like the position. They like handing out money. Yeah. They like the breadth of stimulation, but they're not really company builders and they're not really great investors either. Yeah. It's the, the obvious question then is, are you going all in on EQRX? Meaning like yes. you don't hand the reins over on this one. Yeah. Uh, you know, look, it's, it's, it's a great question. You, I can reframe your question and sort of saying, 
for me, like, what's the right balance for me of sort of that serial company uh, creation, investing, single company operating? And I just told you, uh, said to you that it is always sort of a dynamic uh, uh, balance uh, back and forth. I will say, there's no question, right? I will be deeply involved with EQRX for the long term. You always want to know, like, what's your special sauce? What is the thing that you are best at doing? I think people can, you know, the feedback, it, like, I can be a pretty good sort of uh, CEO overall. But probably what I'm, you know, my comparative advantage is seeing how to put things together, seeing opportunity where maybe other people don't see opportunity, and bringing the people together to make it so uh, and to make it happen. It's not as if you couldn't run a company for 20 years if you wanted to, but maybe your strong suit is seeing the company, having the vision, and then pulling everyone together. Once it's together, someone else can maybe run that, but you're the one that puts it together. You think that's your, your special sauce? I think so. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, there's a couple of things I want to ask about, and they're both sort of related to pricing and EQRX. And I want to go back to this two minute walk that turns into a ride to lunch in a Mercedes for you and this guy and the, and the perception of the biopharm industry overall by the general, general population out there. It's negative. We know that I was just talking to Jeremy Levin about this. I mean, the, the view of the pharmaceutical industry is as low as it's ever been, but whenever you talk to people, they never complain about the science ever. It's never like, why are we trying gene therapy? What is this CRISPR thing? I mean, there are questions about, are you playing God with the genome? But generally, people are blown away by what this industry can do, blown away by it and appreciative. It's always the business side that messes it up. It's evergreening of patents. It's price gouging. It's hiding clinical trial data. It's flooding the countryside or the country with opioids, over-marketing. That's always how we get in trouble. This industry gets in trouble. Yeah, without the money, there is no science, right? I mean, these two things have to be together. So how do we get them to work in concert without allowing the business side to taint the industry over and over? Yeah. So you need the right balance, right? And that's going to be a dynamic tension. And dynamic tensions are always hard to keep the right balance because they you know, tend to be metastable. So you can easily sort of fall off the right balance. You know, going back in the 90s, like what I saw is if you go around the R&D parts of organizations to just what you were saying, people's heads are screwed on right. Yeah. Their motivations are true. The mission is right. I mean, what like uh, if I talk about EQRX with the presidents of R&D, not all of them, but many of them. I want to be saying, you're totally right. You can totally do this, and this is the right thing, what you're doing. It's not necessarily how the CEOs of the company, of the, the big companies feel, but the R&D organizations, the, the motivation on the mission is real. And it's one of the beautiful things about most of biotech, because most of biotech doesn't make money. And so the organizations are driven by the R&D culture in the large cash flow positive companies, what has happened for most of them. And there's a few exceptions, and those are you know really interesting places. But for most of them, the business financial side takes over and becomes the more uh, dominant part uh, yeah. of it. And that balance perhaps comes out of whack a little bit. Look, you know, innovation needs to be rewarded. You know, I've been the entrepreneur out there 
scratching for funds when funds were not easy to get. Uh, I know that all times for raising money were not like the 2014 to 2019 uh, period of time. Yeah. I've been there in lean times and hard times as the entrepreneur. I've been there as the investor deploying the money and knowing that it's hard to get a return across an entire portfolio uh, and sweating it and worrying about it. And like this stuff is not easy. So I get why you need to have the motivation for the f financial return to make uh, the whole system work. But I will make a couple observations. One of those first drugs that I was involved with as a strategy consultant back in the mid-90s, which was a great cancer drug that's made a big difference for a lot of lives of a lot of people over time, if you inflation adjusted it from $1995 to $2020, the price of that drug, the cost of that drug for a to treat a patient over the, what the amount of drug they would receive over the course of the year, in today's dollars, $20,000. Yeah. What do we charge for a new drug today? $200,000, $150,000, $300,000. an industry, we have raised the price that we charge for new drugs. And this is true in cancer, immunoinflammatory. Like back then, an RA drug would have been $10,000. Today, it's a 60000 list with a uh, uh, $15,000 rebate, taking it to a $45,000 net. It's the same thing. Like why, you know, multiple sclerosis drugs, now at 80,000 when they used to be uh, at 8,000, uh, again, in, you know, in inflation adjusted, because it's been sized to make the profit expectations of the cash flow positive companies, which is a merit, and it does propagate into the whole system because those companies acquire companies the expectation of the size of products reflects sort of the, the, the mobilization of capital. But I might postulate, and again, sort of seeing this from the investing side as the investor, that we, you know, maybe we're overcapitalized. Do you need 10 different gene editing approaches for sickle cell in 10 different companies being pursued simultaneously? Is, you know, are we getting the most efficient use of capital as a society? If you have something where a part of society is getting a disproportionate rent taking, then what happens is excess capital flows to that part of society, which leads to inefficiency in global allocation uh, of capital. Yeah. So it's sort of a simple sort of stepping back. Like, I want the ecosystem to work. I want innovation to be rewarded. That is deeply important. But I think objectively, you can point to that we are not at that fair balance right now as an industry. Uh, maybe this is the last thing I want to ask you, but bi biotech wants to be disruptive. Venture capitalists want to be disruptive. They want to take the big swings at great ideas that blow the model apart and come out with a brand new drug that no one's ever seen before and save lives. That's the whole point, right? That's You want to take those risks and be disruptive. And when I think about the payment system that we have for drugs in this country and how bloated it is, and how broken it is really and how PBMs take their cut and how insurance shields off the, the consumer from the high prices and all these other problems that are stuck in the middle there. And I think, you know, the way to the most disruptive thing I could think about would be to do Medicare for all. And I'm not even advocating, but I'm like, that would break the system and we'd have to rebuild all, all around it. And I think there are enough smart minds out there to rebuild around it, but is that a, a valid way to think about it? Just put Medicare for all out there and break the model and start again. So, you know, I think one of the challenges is, as we're actually looping back to where we started the conversation in COVID times, 
uh, centrally administered decisions can have uh, all sorts of challenges about them. Yeah. And uh, the United States of America is a really big country, and it's a really, really diverse country. And the you know if you have a system where it's like there is one payer and it is a a bureaucratic decision-making process in one central place to come up with the decision of whether an innovation can be rewarded or not, that creates all sorts of opportunity for both regulatory capture of that and also to dissuade efforts to go make that happen. Everything is just sort of Medicare for all, totally centralized to all healthcare. I worry that innovation becomes dead. Dead. Yeah. Now, so of course, look, I am a capitalist. And I believe in the power of the market. Um, and I think something as in healthcare, which is so important to people's lives and so broad and so large, that I just think that purely centralized version of it, although it's appealing, yes, you can do it efficiently in the short term. I'm not sure you get all the advances you want in the long term. Yeah. And I take your point. There's all sorts of perverse incentives and complications. And so changing the system by having the disruptive innovation is not easy but again let's uh you know, come back to eqrx if we're successful in what we're doing we're going to blow up the whole way that pharmaceuticals get created get proven that they work get sold and get to the patient why do you have all the middlemen in the world today why doesn't it just simply go direct from the manufacturer right to your door after your physicians ordered it with a telepresent visit by a pharmacist. What does all this other stuff of people getting involved have anything to do with actually making that uh, experience safe and high quality for the patient and for the physician? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, that's it. That's all I had. No, it was, uh, it's been a lot of fun uh, having this conversation with you. Thank you for thank you for taking the time. I, I have a question for you. Is this a, a COVID beard or are you always a beard wearer? I normally have a beard, but I haven't trimmed it since we've been home. So it's way longer and fuller oh, than it normally a, a, is. A longer beard, yeah. Yes, it's more, more it looks more like yours. It's sort of short down, but. This is my first beard, so. Oh, really? Yeah. That looks good. It looks good. <laughs> Thanks, Alexis. Right. I appreciate it. With a pleasure. Okay, that's that. First rounders, Alexis Borsi. Uh, you know, I would prefer better audio. That's true, but you have to do what you can do, and and um, that's what we did. So, I hope that was good. I hope you liked it. The usual thanks, Midwest Quiet. Use of your music. Obviously, thanks to Alexis for for being willing to take part in this and and do it through video. That was much appreciated. If you want to reach us, you can do so on Twitter. You can talk about anything with us, this journal, this podcast, anything else that we do. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. Reminder that we have another podcast that is out now. It is called Forum. It looks at recent papers published in our pages, Nature Biotech's pages or elsewhere, and discusses that work with uh, leading researchers in the field. If you search for Nature Biotechnology and Forum, you will find it wherever you find your podcasts. Obviously the same for First Rounders. You can find us anywhere, subscribe, you'll get them all. Yeah, I don't have anything else to say. I will talk to you later. Goodbye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. AdWanted UK is the provider of single-source media data for agencies, media owners, brands and academic institutions. And thanks to our rebranded news offering called The Media Leader, We can also lead the way in championing excellence and inclusion in the media industry. To find out more, simply visit the-media-leader.com to subscribe to our daily bulletins. The Media Leader from AdWanted UK.